to The Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, Associate Editor at The Tracking Board, and with me, as always... I'm Hui Chen Bui, a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. What's the deal with sitcoms? (laughs) (laughs) So, today... Our episode of The Millennial Falcon will be exploring the situation comedy and everything that comes with it. Since we are millennials, we don't have a big experience with sitcoms before the 90s, but we'll be talking about the kind of evolution from like the three-camera living room sitcom to the mockumentary-style office-type sitcom and now the surreal comedy that we see in Atlanta or The Good Place. Um, I think it'll be a fun episode. (laughs) We're also recording it late at night, so, you know, we'll see what kind of shenanigans happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But Willoughby, I wanted to ask you first, this was your idea for an episode, and you are also kind of the one, I think, out of the three of us who's, like, most passionate about the sitcom and everything. Can you kind of briefly explain to us the three-camera versus single-camera just kind of, like, people lobby those words around a lot when it comes to sitcoms, and not everyone knows what it means. Yeah, it's kind of, like, to use an NPR term, inside baseball. Um, and so, uh, three-camera sitcom is, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of, like, a little self-explanatory, but um, traditional sitcoms from, like, the 60s to the to early 2000s, and still today, there's this studio audience type uh, sitcom setup where there's a stage and there's three cameras and they film, they just cross cut while they're recording. Like that's how you edit the episode is that you just have these three cameras and they're recording everything. And you're like, okay, you know, camera A on Jerry Seinfeld, camera B on George, on George, uh, Jason Alexander, roll action, let's do it and see what happens. And that, and that's kind of how you can like, and there, there'll be one that sh- that does. There'll be like a third camera that does the master shot of the entire scene, and so basically, you know, character, character, master shot all all at once. You know, it's kind of ha- to to get away with like filming a lot um, in so little time, and that's how sitcoms can churn out like an episode a week. So you're just recording so much. Single camera sitcoms are more like you're filming a movie where you have one camera. And you're running around, and you're setting up shots. You might pos- you might have two cameras, but you don't uh, you don't treat it like you're on a soundstage. You treat it like you're in a movie, and you're just covering your bases with shoot with shooting extra footage at the same time in case in case there's like a lot of improv. Like uh, on Parks and Rec, they'll have a couple cameras going at the same time. That's also part of the mockumentary style that Parks and Rec and The Office kind of um, uh, very much innovated into TV. Uh, with having like just a lot of coverage and reality television, it's more fake than Parks and Rec. Um, we don't have to get into that. Um, so sitcoms are generally broken down into two subgroups, which are the uh, soundstage sitcom and the single camera sitcom. Um, and within those, that there's also more subgroups and stuff. But the basic general principle is that you know you've got your Big Bang theories. And your two and a half men's a lot of Chuck Chuck Lorre shows and CBS mm-hmm. shows are still doing single camera. I mean three camera sitcom, 
and then you have NBC focusing more on the uh, single-camera sitcoms, like your Office, your Parks and Rec, your Good Place, surprisingly all by Mike Schur. Um, and then Fox has Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, which does... Also by the, Mike Schur. By Mike Schur, but not mockumentary style. Um, but still the love and happiness that comes with friendship. You know, this never occurred to me before, but I realized that the three-camera sitcom is in the traditional setup of like a play. You know, yeah. there's people exiting stage, um, entering stage and stuff like that, stage left, stage right. Um, and even the sets are somewhat akin to the stage. It's like what we have with... Um, idea of the fourth wall so there's only three walls in the room except the fourth wall which is the camera um and um and for some reason that never occurred to me but it's very much like a play whereas the new sitcoms the ones that are only single camera are like movies yeah and it's very interesting because a lot of sitcoms back in the day were filmed almost like plays like that's like you know they're like all in the family and whatnot that was very much like little like one act plays throughout like for a half hour Mm -hmm. um and you know it's a lot of a lot of older sitcoms have a lot more limited sets and so they're there a lot um and now now it's you know a lot of times like how i met your mother didn't really have a studio audience they had a laugh track but so they were able to do a lot more outside of outside of their sets um or or their their like the, the bar scene and in their apartments. They could do a lot more uh, close-ups and cutting to things and flashbacks. Like, that's the thing about How I Met Your Mother was it was so non-linear that you, could, that you almost had to... You couldn't do a studio audience mm. unless you had... I think what they did was they had, someone, they had a, a group come in and watch, the, like, a finished cut of the episode mm. without a laugh track, and then they became the laugh track. Um, I want to say that's how they did it. They're both CBS sitcoms, but if you look at How I Met Your Mother's laugh tracks and you look at The Big Bang Theory's laugh tracks, they're very different. Mm. Um, the How I Met Your Mother ones are so subtle that you almost don't, you almost kind of forget they're there. Whereas Big Bang Theory literally shuts the production down with the laugh track. No one will talk for two seconds, for like three seconds. Do you think that The Big Bang Theory is trying to compensate for the fact that it's not actually funny? <laughs> Um, this is, this is a, um, if you Anti. haven't heard yet, I hate the Big Bang Theory. As do I. Passion, as with most of us on the podcast. Although, um, to play devil's advocate for a second. No, there is Not about the Big Bang Theory, but your point about yeah. how, you know, it would shut down the scene for a couple of seconds while they play yes. the laugh track. Isn't that how traditional sitcoms with actual studio audiences, that would have that was how I would play out. Like, the audience would laugh for so long, and then they would wait until the laughter died down until they went on to the next line or next joke. Yeah, but they were genuinely funny. Yes. That's the thing, is there is there is the difference in laughter where you would <laughs> laugh with the joke that was being said, and then versus some nerd reference that Penny makes because she doesn't understand nerds. And then you're just because. Kind of like, Fun fact for everyone out there, The Big Bang Theory is laughing at you, not with you. Yes. And The Big Bang Theory, unlike Mike Sure comedies, punches down, not up, and that's why it's a terrible show. Yes. That's a good and summary, Anya. We can look at another show that treats nerds as much better, which is Community. Um, the, the little show that could... Um, Filmed, obviously, single camera. Um, they made fun of the, the three-camera sitcom setup 
in the very beginning of the fourth season um, when Dan Harmon left the show. Um, and the fourth season we like to call Gaslight Year. We're currently living in a Gaslight Year. Um, but the, you know, they tr- they try to, to the the thing about, the, I guess the thing about three camera sitcoms is that they're kind of, people like to characterize them as quaint and like older and simple where they're, you know, you learn a lesson within a half hour. Whereas a lot of a lot of these other show these more modern single camera sitcoms are kind of they don't really I mean a lot of them do care I mean like Parks and Rec cares about its characters very much but they never really like learn a heartening lesson at the end of the episode and everything's all better um, they kind of just grow as characters and you kind of just see them evolve over time it's much more serialized well and that kind of gets to the evolution yeah um, do you believe that though Willoughby? Like that, three camera sitcoms are, you know, quaint and not as evolved or like. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't actually think that. But I think mm-hmm. that that's the characterization that a lot of people put them as. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you can still find there's still a lot of value in the in the in the three camera sitcom setup. It's very much like, um, not junk food, but like casual, like snacking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like comfort food, um, where it's kind of like oh, you know you're kind of laughing with at the same time as the audience is, um, if the jokes are funny. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing. It's like, it's, it all depends with three camera sitcoms if it's funny. Um, otherwise, the calm part of sitcom kind of goes out the door and it just becomes situational. Like, some of my favorite sitcoms, though, were three camera sitcoms. So like Friends mm-hmm. or um, That 70s Show, for example. Um, oh, yeah, classic. That's, yeah. that's the thing. It's such a classic... I think it also it kind of subverted the '70s sitcom mm-hmm. as being a, set in the '70s. They kind of like flipped that Archie Bunker stuff on its flip side, mm-hmm. um, and showed you kind of like the underside of that sitcom, like literally with a basement mm-hmm. um, to a '70s sitcom household, which is kind of now I'm thinking about it, kind of brilliant. Um, and so, I mean, I grew up with sitcoms as well. Um, I used to watch Seinfeld as a kid and Friends as a kid and then just a ton of other little ones that probably came around. Boy Meets World um, was your big one too, right? Boy Meets World, definitely. I would say I bought, the, I recently bought the entire, all seven seasons. I think I talked about this on the, on the podcast right around Christmas time. Um, uh, yeah, that was a big one. That was very influential. Um, cause that was, that was actually, that was like a, you know, Nowadays, it, it would be seen as way too, like, stereotypical of a show, but mm-hmm. I think it really bucked a lot of trends and was very r- realistic acting, um, and you, like, you know, these characters grew up throughout the, throughout the seven years run. It's, um, I, didn't, I didn't really watch Saved by the Bell as much. Did you guys watch Saved by the Bell? I think that was before our time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a couple of years. Oh my it was, God. On, it was you, on reruns. If you watch Saved by the Bell now... It's oh, bad. It's so it's oh, it's so cringy. The other thing is that let me rewind. A while back, like a year or two ago, went out drinking with my friends. Get home, realize daylight saving, so it's not like two in the morning. It's like three in the morning. <laughs> we order pizza. It's the worst pizza I've ever had in my life. Um and. Saved by the Roll reruns are on. And so we're watching it, we're drunk, we're eating terrible pizza, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, and like, 
and I'm in my drunk state, I can still realize how terrible Saved by the Bell is. <laughs> oh, wow. And then I had this moment of, like, Zack and Kelly are the worst. Slater and whatever the girl he liked, her name, whatever her name was, are great. And she's, like, super feminist. And I was like, why was the show about Zack and Kelly? Like, because early 90s a, were about the jocks. That is a great point about sitcoms. That's the point I wanted to bring up, is that sitcoms do not age well. Sitcoms don't age well, but I also there's also a second point about romance and sitcoms, that the side romances are kind of more, they're much better. Except the, for Parks and Rec. Re- Except for Parks and Rec, which is like ben, the Ben and Leslie storyline is like an, it, it's the exception to the rule, but it almost seems like every sitcom the main romance is not as good as the side romances from the other like main like other parts of the like uh, main cast. Monica so, and Chandler. Yes, exactly. Monica My and OTP. Chandler. Monica and Chandler exactly. is always better than Ross and Rachel. Has oh always so been better. better than Ross and Rachel. First of all, they're healthy and that their yes. neuroses. Exactly. And like Willoughby's point, the exception is always Mike Sure. Jake and Amy are great. Ben and Leslie are great. Chidi and Eleanor are great on The Good Place. Mm-hmm. Mike Sure is so consistently good with all his characters, supporting characters, romances, friendships, everything. He's so good with them. He's the exception because he is like the best sitcom person of all time. But Although if he has so many sitcoms, he's becoming more of the rule. Which I'd like to Which is like good. But exception. you're right, because Monica and Chandler are better. Um, Willoughby and I had a nice, healthy discussion about this the other day, but um, Cece and Schmidt are better than Nick and Jess on New oh. Girl. And, and Winston and Winston Alley. And Winston and Alley are way better. New Girl exactly fits the Friends uh, parallel, because Nick and Jess are Ross and Rachel. Cece and Schmidt are Monica and Chandler. And Winston dates outside of the group, Allie, like mm. Phoebe and Mike. In Friends, yes. it's the exact parallel. And also, Phoebe and Winston are the weirdest characters. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, although it's... I, I don't find Schmidt and Cece as compelling as Monica and Chandler. Oh no! I mean, there's, I, I think, I think there's, um, it, they're different, they're different romances. Yeah, they're definitely different relationships. I mean, I think it's just like my own problems with like how over the top Schmidt is, but. Oh, totally. Yeah. I really warm to Schmidt, so I really like Schmidt and Cece. And the reason I like them is, similar to a lot of other sitcom couples that are my favorites, is Schmidt and Cece support each other. Like, now that they're married and everything, like, their whole relationship is about being there for each other and supporting each other. And, like, that's what I like to see in my sitcom romances. Because hearing Ross and Rachel yell about whether or not they were on a break is not compelling. It's toxic. It is. And, and it's also, you want to buck the trend of having, like, the husband who doesn't really care about his wife or, you know, is, you know, family guy kind of makes fun of it with, like, the fat guy who's all, like, narcissistic and, you know, incredibly toxic to his family. And then, like, the quote-unquote nagging wife um, who is, like, just trying to be there for her family. And, you know, they kind of make they make fun of that where if you look at, like, the King of Queens or, like any other like type of that show like that is kind of awkward because it's it really plays into like these weird stereotypes of relationships and toxic marriages and stuff well speaking of that i remember reading an article about how all in the family was actually somewhat 
progressive in that it had like you know this brash, crass, out of touch character as like the patriarch of this family, and like every episode was about proving him wrong and about how like, yeah. he was, you know, the one who was behind the times and stuff. Um, so like I don't really know much about All in the Family. I haven't really seen it, but I think that like as much as it's great to subvert these sort of stereotypes of it, I do think that like these original sitcoms at the time like that they were made in the context did do well in terms of like shaping the discussion and shaping the culture. And, and and I agree with you on that. And I think that sitcoms also have to evolve with the times Mm. in terms of filmmaking um, and in terms of stories you tell um, and how you tell them. I feel like that's that's I think that's why we've seen such a, growth of single camera sitcoms over the course of the last 15 years um beginning kind of with the office let's talk a little bit about that yeah because like before the office you had um like nbc's uh thursday night comedy lineup was almost like almost all like uh the three camera sitcoms and then obviously the uk office premiered before the u.s office and then the u.s office kind of took off um with its mockumentary style filmmaking and kind of like fourth wall breaking of having like you know jim looking at the camera Mm -hmm. you know reacting to something dwight did or michael did um where does 30 rock fall into the nbc i was about to ask about that uh just line up and like everything well, it premiered in 2006, so a year after The Office did. Um, so, like, that was a so, transitional time, basically, for sitcoms. Yeah. So, and that was, like, the, for a long time, or not a long time, but it was, like, The Office and 30 Rock were kind of, like, the flagships of NBC comedy. And then Parks and Rec came around, and then Community came around, and then for, and then it was kind of those four on Thursday night in some... I can't remember the schedule, but it was those four. And the community was, you know, bucked around a couple times by NBC. Um, but for the most part, it was The Office for eight years. It was uh, 30 Rock for seven and Parks and Rec for seven. And But over that course of time, it was about nine years mm. from 2005 to 2014 um, of having The Office dovetail into 30 rock dovetail into parks and rec um and i think that was you know that was kind of like the heyday i mean obviously cheers was a a major show um in the 80s and 90s frazier was a huge hit which was a a spinoff of cheers Mm -hmm. nbc is kind of the go-to for sitcoms for a long like if you for a long time um more interestingly is that we have a lot of uh three camera sitcoms um, oh, not three camera, but a lot more progressive shows on like ABC. Um, so we've got Speechless. Um, we've got Blackish. Uh, Blackish. Mm-hmm. Fresh off the boat. Fresh off the boat. That was my next one. Um, and then Modern Family, which kind of started ABC's progressive nature. Which I mean, now is not progressive. Yeah, it kind it's of very, became a parody it, of itself. Yeah, um, and it. I, the one thing I could never get over um, Modern, Modern Family is that they kind of tried to do, make it a mockumentary, but they really half-assed it. Um, whereas Parks and Rec had its 
it's it's like um, mockumentary style, but it, it kind of abandoned it um, by the end. And you, but The Office really played into the fact that it was a mockumentary. I kind of like that mm. how, how they did that. Um, but yeah, we never saw like a final video from Parks and Rec about like the the mockumentary they were making. <laughs> um, and yeah, Modern Family just. I've seen the first half of the first season. It didn't really excite me. Um, and now eight, I think it's what, eight years into it? I, wow. I can't Too get long. into it. Um, and Big Bang Theory is in its 32nd season. So. <laughs> it's terrible. So while these things are going on, we're still seeing like three camera sitcoms from more traditional networks like CBS. Um, but even those are starting to taper off and and get less buzz. Like I know there's that new Joel McHale show that movie was very insensitive about, and even like other shows like The Odd Couple and other random Odd Couple type shows. I don't know why they oh, have like yeah. this fixation on Odd Couple type shows. Well, I think it. I mean, if you think about it, it's a great sitcom narrative. Mm-hmm. You have one character that's all about one thing, and then you have another character that's the opposite of that. And you put them together. Typical See, buddy That's kind of like what Two and a Half Men was, yeah. too. Even though they were brothers. So now that we're seeing the shift away from the mockumentary trend, what do you think we're seeing in sitcoms now? Well, I think we talked about that very briefly when we were doing our overarching, which is the surreal sitcom. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, we pointed out Atlanta and The Good Place. Both wildly different, but still kind of like taking taking like the worlds that they live in to a, to a surreal level of heightened, like super heightened reality. Mm-hmm. Um, there are moments in Atlanta that are just not of this earth. And there are moments in the good place, literally that none of it <laughs> is on earth. See, I think it's less the surreal element. I think that's just a niche. Mm-hmm. I think the larger trend is just, larger narrative arcs where a sitcom previously would you know have an arc last you know a small handful of episodes sitcoms are now starting to do like in some cases even like season-long arcs and like this came even before the good place and atlanta like you know parks and rec did it with like leslie's campaign and so i think what we're more seeing is instead of like while each episode still has its own, like, singular plot, we're instead seeing threads that run through entire seasons, sometimes more than one season, far more than they ever used to do in sitcoms. And so I think the surreal is just kind of a subgenre of this sort of trend of having larger, more cohesive narratives. Mm-hmm. Essentially, we're seeing more dramatic elements or elements from dramas and stuff like that in sitcoms, yes. which is why I want to talk about a little bit about um, Atlanta, which is such a fascinating and unique sitcom in that it's doing something I've never seen a sitcom do before. Um, you know, like Willoughby mentioned the surreal elements and the kind of just strange space that it um, occupies. And, you know, it reminded me a lot of dramas like Twin Peaks or, um, you know, kind of fantasy shows like that. But um, we've never really seen a sitcom like that. And that's why, just like, Atlanta is something I wasn't really taken with at first when I watched it because I thought it was more of like a kind of gritty, realistic show. But then I realized it was actually this just strange fantasy show that 
I think will get even better on rewatch. Yeah, like it has a, uh, it does a lot of weird things. Like there's an entire episode that is focused on this like parody of a black entertainment mm-hmm. of black that black entertainment. Is so good. It's almost farcical, yeah. It's and you're kind of you've got characters from the TV show from Atlanta on this like like um, talk show. Mm-hmm. Um, I love on that this, episode. And it's it's not black. It's not BET, but it's like a black entertainment television. Mm-hmm type channel mm-hmm. it's very interesting like how they you know sub- i mean it's not the same filmmaking style at all it's and it's one of the only episodes directed by donald glover mm. it's that one and then the one that um that is focused all about van is the other one That's that he's one. he's directed so it's his style is kind of even more heightened than the show itself it's very it's very interesting. I feel like Atlanta is almost marrying the elements of the traditional sitcom as well as elements of dramas with the sort of web comedy that we are seeing a lot um, and shows mm-hmm. that are very popular or like have that really fast paced, quick, um, almost sketch like humor, like what you see in Portlandia or what you see in Broad City. Um, and I feel like Atlanta is doing a amalgamation of all of those things. That's how I feel about Insecure. Two, which I think uh, I Insecure is what so is, good. Is Insecure, Insecure is um, Issa Rae's comedy on HBO. Mm. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's truly excellent. I actually liked it more than Atlanta, um, mm. personally. Um, and it could be simply because I was more drawn to the female narrative um, that is Insecure. They're both excellent. Um, but I think all those things you're talking about, HD, are also in Insecure. Mm. And... I just want to give a shout out to Insecure as well for being kind of one of the best new comedies. And we haven't really even talked about the HBO comedies. Girls um, is a big one. There's Girls, there's Veep, there's Silicon Valley. You know, they they these um, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm was a big one mm-hmm. for a while. Also done by Larry David, who did Seinfeld. Um, and so, you know, you've got... HBO, I mean, HBO's always done single-camera stuff. Um, they did Flight of the Concords. You know, you've got... They, they've been doing the single-camera sitcom game for a while. Um, but it's only just now that I think people are... Or at least in the in this age, the, this set of shows that they've got going are pretty excellent. Um, I love Veep and I love Silicon Valley. Um, so, that's my thing on HBO companies. <laughs> they can obviously also like with their dramas push the boundaries a little mm-hmm. bit more so their comedies kind of can go places that network comedies can't go um obviously and that's yeah, yeah. you know yeah. kind of a given but you know it also applies to kind of their humor and you know the way they structure their comedy yeah like silicon valley um is very interestingly ser- serialized because it's all about one goal of getting this startup started up um and so and it's all about like two you know one step forward two steps back for like all the their 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 progress on their tech startup and then you've got shows like veep where it's kind of like the day-to-day of of the presidency or the vice presidency depending on which season you're in um and it's kind of just the major fuck-ups that they have to deal with uh and then it's just kind of like that's like the episode every every episode is kind of like what shit are we dealing with now um and that's kind of an interesting way of 
putting down an episode because like if you watch a whole ep- season a whole season like you can binge it in five hours you're kind of like you know that was like one like one story told but like for veep they did a couple seasons of of, the, of an election um and i think the last three seasons were all about the ele- their their version of the 2016 election <laughs> and honestly i tell you guys you know Veep and House of Cards did three, two to three seasons for their 2016 election, and it's felt just as long in real life as well. Um, and they were doing a parody, like they were doing a satire. Yeah. So it's not like they thought what they thought what they were doing was worse than what was going to happen in reality. Well, it's yeah. like Leslie Note versus Bobby Newport. Mm-hmm. That's the th- well, Bobby Newport was such a. He never had he a real job in his life. Bobby Newport Bobby Newport's never had a real job. Bobby Newport. Bobby Newport. Bobby Newport. Come on, Jerry. God. (laughs) Get back to work. Okay. Um, But yeah. But like if Bobby Newport and Jeremy Jam became one person, they'd be Donald Trump. (laughs) That's terrible. Yeah. We would like to say that the Millennial Falcon is abstaining from political views. Um, are we? <laughs> are we? No, we're no, not. We're not. Um, we're, uh, yeah, we're talking about the, the the sitcoms of now and where they're going and where they're headed. Um, Anya, you love the Good Place. I do. Can you talk about what you what what you think makes it such a great sitcom? Mike, sure. In this in this age, Mike, sure. of sitcoms. Mike Shirt, sure. my lord and savior of sitcoms. Um, <laughs> I mean, The Good Place, you know, to me, it has what Parks and Rec and what Brooklyn Nine like. It has all the trademarks of Mike Sure. It's like a longer narrative. The humor punches up instead of down. And I think that's just what I like in my sitcoms is, you know, humor that doesn't have to um, laugh at people. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing about his comedies is that, so one of my big issues with sitcoms is that, and I mentioned this briefly, is that they don't age well. And I think Mike sure, I hope, that his sitcoms, because of what they are and kind of the space they occupy, they will age better than a lot of other sitcoms. Um, I certainly hope so, because I've labeled Parks and Rec as my favorite show of all time, so <laughs> let's hope. I mean, I... I I've recently was rewatching some older Parks and Rec episodes, and it, they definitely hold up because, like, it, I mean, the references are a little, they get a little. I mean, the references dated. always will be, but kind but, of like. But mm. but like, but the love and respect that the characters have for each other and the writers have for the yeah. characters, it's it's it's, it's always works. kind of like I like I really love Thirty Rock as well, but the reason why I'll always love like Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine Nine more is just because Thirty Rock is the more cynical of the two. You know, that's the whole mm-hmm. Tina Fey, Amy Poehler dichotomy. Mm-hmm. It's why I'm an yeah. Amy Poehler girl. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the sitcoms are warm and you care about the characters. You know, it's why I still really love Friends, even though Friends feels very dated at times. And its comedy can be a little cringy now in 2017, um, especially with, like, Joey and Chandler and kind of the weird homophobia the gay panic. Yeah, that happened. A lot um, of gay panic. Which is, Wasn't there one... There was one episode where Joey and Ross... Took a nap. Took a nap, yeah. nap together. And there was a whole... And now... And, uh, and they were kind of, like, frightened about yeah, their own Yeah, and I totally acknowledge that. that 
but like I'll always still really love Friends. It still makes me laugh really hard, and I still really care about the characters. Mm-hmm. Like H.T. said, mostly Monica and Chandler. Um, yes. But I feel like there are a lot of other sitcoms that I kind of loved at a time, and now I just find they just haven't aged well. Modern Family is a huge one for me. Mm-hmm. That show is just kind of, again, a little cringeworthy now. Um, and here's where my confession comes. So I have a confession to make. And I, is this the one? Yes, that... this is the one that I've been trying to keep secret from Willoughby. <gasps> okay. Go for it. I don't think How I Met Your Mother is a very good show anymore. I get it. <laughs> I've been so nervous. Season nine was. I've the, been so. Ner- season nine was terrible, and the finale was was shit. No, I get it. Yes, but beyond the finale. <laughs> so, like, lot, like first first season, so second season. I don't think How I Met Your Mother has held up very well. I think part of it has to do with the fact that Ted Mosby is the worst. And you have no, a protagonist who is Ted the worst. Um, it goes to HT's point that the supporting characters. Um, but Oh yeah, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall and Lily. Lily are the best. But I think for me, I just go back to How Much Mother and it just doesn't connect anymore. And the writing doesn't feel good anymore in what it used to when it first aired. Um, And maybe it's just my palette has changed, and, like, I've... I just have different interests now, and different things appeal to me now, but I go back to High Much Mother, and it falls flat to me. And I'm afraid the same thing might happen with New Girl, except in the case of New Girl, I find that I care about the group more. And so it... Mm -hmm still works for me on a level but this is what comedy has always been very difficult for me though i've always been very picky about my comedy and i think it could be a me thing and just how much your mother just doesn't fly with me anymore <sighs> willoughby are we still friends I, oh my god i was I so afraid that person as well but Wait, I don't, I'm not as completely against How Met Your Mother as Anya is, but I will You're say- You're the one who got me interested I did. in How I Met Your Mother, I did, I introduced you to How I Met Your Mother because you didn't know what kind of show it was because the title was so odd, but I was like, no, it's actually a great show in the vein of Friends, and we watched it together in college. But I will say- And we say, should point out, that was, that was at the beginning of season seven when it was airing. Mm-hmm, and you binged all so of it. So season eight and nine had not happened yet. Whoa, I didn't realize you got into it say, so though, late. He did. He got yeah, into it really late. I got, I, Anya, I only got into it in 2011. I wonder if this is it. I started watching it when the pilot aired. In 2005? Yeah. I watched it when in the third season, I think. I started watching it during the third season. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I, I had to watch all, seven, all six seasons. <laughs> I watched them all during a semester of college. That wasn't probably good for my homework. <laughs> but I did it. Um, and I loved the show. So... I will say, I think that for me, Tom and your mother, the ending has tainted a lot of the show for me. Like, mm. I can't watch a lot of the, sh- the the arcs or the seasons where, like, Ted is just pining over Robin because I know what's going to happen. Because, like, a lot of my, um, a lot of how I, like, 
explained that away. It was like, oh, it's okay. It's just temporary. He'll get the mother at the end and I don't have to like be worried or like be pained by this, be suffered through this anymore. But now it's just like, oh, it was all, it was all for naught. I do think yeah. like a lot of the jokes still hold up well, but I understand where you're coming from, Anya. Fun fact I wanted to add about Friends, though, in terms of it holding up. It has, interestingly, gotten a second life on Netflix in that now that it is on the streaming service, a lot of younger people from, like, the generation who were born after the 90s, like, 2000s, love Friends. As they should. It's huge amongst the teens these days. And they're, like, they see it as, like, a fun relic of the 90s and also, like, you know, the whole 90s nostalgia. But it still holds up for even them who are, like, pretty sophisticated in their humor, which I think is really fascinating. I mean, it Friends is still is like, such a funny show. And I think what Friends has... It is a funny show. It's cast, like, is so funny. Like, Ross, mm-hmm. like Ted Mosby, is the worst. But David Schwimmer has some really great delivery. Like... Pivot. Oh he yeah, does. no, he, he, him as a comedic pivot, actor. Pivot, his <laughs> sandwich. Oh my god! Like it's so funny. Oh, it's so great. Oh, and so it's really funny. I can still quote that show like backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. I love um, yeah, like everyone's favorite, the one with the embryos, when they have the contest for the apartments about who knows who better. Right? And the one that's like, what phenomenon, like, scares Chandler? And it's like, Michael Flowley, Lord of the Dance! And Chandler's like, his legs move about as independent from his body! I quoted that recently in an Instagram photo. And that's what Friends is, like, even if some of the humor feels very, like, very 90s, um, and there's that gay Mm. panic and stuff, Mm -hmm. I still watch it with a lot of love, and I still laugh, like, out loud. Um, I will say, I think out of the 90s comedies, though, Friends is my favorite, but I think Frasier holds up the best. See, I haven't watched Frasier since the 90s. I've only seen, like, reruns of Frasier when it was on TBS or something. Like, I never really paid attention to it. I, yeah, Um, I actually never really watched it while it was airing, um, but I have some friends who are really into it now, and I've kind of, it's on Netflix, um, and I've kind of been revisiting it just when I kind of want, like, an easy like, show, and it's really good. Do you also want to hear a funny story about it? Sure. <laughs> I was having lunch with a friend one day, and we were talking about, like, shows and actors and stuff, and I was like, man, I always get Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce mixed up in my head. I know one of them was on Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> For context, both of them They play brothers. Frasier, they play brothers. <laughs> Well, you you can't you can't be blamed for mixing them up at least. <laughs> so, that's my funny story for the day. And and I know you guys aren't real big Seinfeld fans, but Seinfeld was a, a big show when I was growing up. My my mom watches it all the time. I well, watch it all the time. My sister did. Like we, I mean, we wouldn't sit down around the Dobbs family table family table and like watch it. But, like, we'd watch it on, like, TBS reruns, you know, if it would have it on the background. And it recently came to Hulu, um, like, last year. And so I rewatched a bunch of episodes. And, I mean, I know you guys don't like it very much, but I find the show endearing and fun. And just, like, I know the characters are kind of terrible people, but that's kind of the point. Well, I never and I actually... know that's not, it's not your cup of yeah. tea, Anya. <laughs> I've never actually watched many episodes of Seinfeld. I've seen, like, a couple episodes, like, 
here and there, but I've never watched it to form an opinion of it. So I can't say oh, whether okay. I like it or not. I thought, I thought in our conversations. Never I mind. am definitely anti-Seinfeld um, and pro-Friends, and I firmly believe that you cannot be both. You have to be one or the other, Willoughby. I yeah, I, um, I was just confused I, by Seinfeld when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm. You can't I'm both. Um, it's the great <laughs> sitcom debate. I agree to disagree, Anya. So I think we've had a good discussion on the past and the future of sitcoms, and I I don't know where they will be going, but I think there's a good idea of like what the current situation is. Um, so the, for the to wrap up our our discussion on sitcoms, we'll be talking about our three favorite sitcoms each. Um, so let's see, I'll go first. Yes, you go first, please. <laughs> okay. Um, Parks and Rec. Friends. <laughs> oh, the suspense is killing me. The suspense is killing everyone because I can't decide. <laughs> um, just go for it. Flip a coin. I'm going to go with Atlanta for now just because I Ooh, find it. a new There's one. only one season, but I find it so fascinating and groundbreaking that it might be up there in terms of my favorite sitcoms. Okay. All right. I have mine. So... Really, it's Parks and Rec, full stop. I don't even need to include any other ones. But since HT generously gave me two other slots, uh, it will also be, so Parks and Rec, Friends, and my last one is The Dick Van Dyke Show. Ooh, Ooh an old an one. I, so we've got old ones. Dick Van Dyke got and Marion Tyler Moore are A+. By the way, R-I-P. both are streaming on Hulu. Dick Van Dyke Show, last I checked, was also on Netflix. Is Last it? I checked. Okay. Um, I know that if it is, I know Myra Tyler Moore is on Hulu. It's on Hulu. They did a whole um, like little special section for her. Mm-hmm. In fact, Hulu has a lot of older sitcoms um, in their in full, like All in the Family, and more of the older type of three camera sitcoms that we've been talking about this entire time. So I would, you know, check out Hulu's TV section for older sitcoms. All right, Willoughby. What are your three? Um, <laughs> You're the sitcom aficionado. You have to. Yeah, of course I do. I have I have three. I was just making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've got Parks and Rec. I think we can affirmatively say Parks and Rec is the favorite TV show of the Millennial yes. Falcon. Um, so Parks and Rec, Boy Meets World, and Drumroll, How I Met Your Mother. I had a feeling. Wait, yep. I just realized I need to make an honorable mention to Community. Oh! Community! Yes, honorable mention. I feel like I also want to make an honorable mention just to, like, give a second nod to Boy Meets World. Because I love Boy Meets World so much. It's so good. I've yet to see it. I, like, still can't believe that. I'm the worst member of the Millennial well, Falcon. Okay. I mean, I mean, it's not your fault. You didn't have cable. I didn't have cable as a kid. So. I was a cableless child. I just do wonder I if it'll lots of mean the same to you as it does to me and Willoughby. That's a really good question. Won't. I mean, we'll see. I'm sure it holds up. Speaking of nostalgia, I think that was a wonderful walk down memory lane for our sitcoms. Now, let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. What do you guys really like this week? Willoughby, 
why don't you go first? Um, so on Tuesday, that's usually when Blu-rays come out to buy. Um, and I bought two movies. I'll only talk about one because if we've already talked about the first one for a while, um, I bought Arrival on Blu-ray, yeah. which you should all all go buy. Um, and it's great and it's beautiful. Lovely movie. But the one I'm talking about today is The Edge of Seventeen, starring Haley Steinfeld. Um, I saw that uh, I saw a tweet saying that it was available now on Blu-ray on that Tuesday, and I was like, oh, I'll just pop on over to Best Buy and buy it. So I, and I, I had never seen it in theaters before. Um, I asked HT if it was worth it, and she said yes. So I went and bought it, and I watched it on Tuesday, and I, guys, I really, really like it. Um, it is a, it is, it is a, a very much a Willoughby movie in this, in the tent, in the terms of it being emotional, indie, comedic, and great performance, great, like, like career best performances, um, in terms of Haley Steinfeld and a little bit of, no, I wouldn't say Woody Harrelson is at his best, but he's very good in the movie. Um, I loved his 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 character, his his role as the as the uh, aloof professor uh, teacher, um, and then Haley Steinfeld. I mean, she was great in True Grit, but I think this is her best role. Um, she shows a lot more emotion, dynamic range in emotion, and in she carries the film. Like the film would not have worked if it wasn't for her. She is just stellar throughout the entire thing. Um, and it's got like a John Hughes vibe without, you know, putting too much attention to that. Um, and it's, you know, got a great like theme of like, you know, everyone has problems. Everyone's sorting out their own issues. Um, and Haley Steinfeld has her character is so complicated and so three dimensional that it was just such it was it was great to see that um, in, a, in a teen movie again. Um yeah, so the end hey, of Willoughby. 17. Guess what? What? I saw that movie for the first time last Friday. What? And I also really loved it. It's it's a very great good. Movie. Yes. I think I liked how an unconventional teen movie it was. Because, you know, it doesn't really follow the tropes that you would see in a teen movie. And it feels just very genuine and like slice of life y. Mm-hmm. But- Although it does have kind of like. Like the, the like the love interests are kind of I wouldn't say stereotypical. There's like the unattainable boy mm-hmm. versus the boy next door boy. Yeah, it has like recognizable tropes, but it never falls to them. Yeah, you know I mean? but yeah, The Edge of Seventeen. I really loved it. So Anya, what is your really like for this week? All right, so everyone should definitely always be listening to our podcast, but. I also want to give a shout-out to another podcast this week, and that's my really like for the week. So I really like Beautiful Anonymous, which is a really wonderful podcast. It's hosted by uh, Chris Gethard of The Chris Gethard Show, um, also Broad City. Um, he was also in Don't Think Twice with Keegan-Michael Key and Jillian Jacobs. Um, he's a comedian. Mm-hmm. And so basically the concept of the show is that people call in and completely anonymous, they're not allowed to give their name, and they talk with Chris Gethard for an hour. So the only two rules of the show is that you cannot give your name, 
and you can only talk for an hour. They cut you off at the end. Um, and so basically they just, it's a conversation, a two-way conversation, and they just talk about various parts of their lives. And it's very honest and it's very vulnerable. It's very emotional, very funny at times too. Um, you know, I listened to an episode about someone who used to be a heroin addict. And then there was an episode about someone who was a high school band teacher. And so it's a whole range of stories, but it's all just very real and really beautiful. And, you know, they kind of just make me feel good and kind of make me feel in touch with other people in the world, even if, you know, I don't know who they are. I've never met them before. Um, And, you know, Chris Gethard as a host will ask them questions and will prompt them. And, you know, he's always very like, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but... Most people are usually very forthcoming, um, and it's just a really nice podcast. Um, it's something different. You know, a lot of the podcasts I listen to are either, like, reviewing entertainment or talking about politics or just kind of, like, very, like, about very specific topics, and this one just kind of lets me feel kind of mellowed out and just, you know, in touch with humanity. So my really like for the week is Beautiful Anonymous. It's a great podcast. I will right. check it out. It sounds It's really amazing. beautiful. Yeah, they just, um, one of the more recent ones that I've listened to, there's one about, like, a girl who's, her family's from Vietnam, and she's, her brothers and her parents were all born in Vietnam and came over here, and she's the first one in that family to be born in America, and what it's like, kind mm. of bridging that gap. The culture. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, they kind of touch on so many different topics, um, and it's really beautiful. And you guys should check it out. Aww. I will. I think I've been looking for a new podcast anyway. Well, there you go. Anyways, my really like is not as much of a thought-provoking follow-up, but, and it's not even that much of a really like. It's my thoughts on the follow-ups series to his dark materials so philip coleman recently announced that he is going to be writing a new trilogy um to the his dark materials series which was the golden compass the subtle knife and the amber spyglass they were my favorite series as a kid um when i was in sixth grade i read them all for the first time and i did not really understand it it took me a while to grasp what the series was really about so from then on I just reread the entire series every year, and it became a sort of tradition for me and my favorite series in the end. I haven't actually done that in a while. I should do that again, especially since there's going to be a follow-up trilogy coming up. Although it's, do you know, it's like an equal, that's what he called it, an equal. It's not a prequel. Yeah, it's not, it's a not really a sequel. Yeah. That's why I called it because... a follow-up series, because yeah. it's not, It can't, it does, a lot of it doesn't really take place afterwards. It's kind of... The first Some book of it takes, takes place beforehand. Yeah, the first right? book takes place 10 years before the events of the Golden Compass. Um, and it's less about, like, it seems like the narrative of, you know, Lyra and the main characters of the series and more about just, like, the world building, I guess, and the whole concept of dust and, like, dark matter and everything, which was really fascinating. Um, but, I mean, it would be difficult to create a sequel off of the His Dark Material series because they kind of destroyed Heaven at the end. Well, the, the second book in the trilogy is a sequel. 
The second. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you mean like in the yeah, trilogy. yeah, yeah. It takes place yeah. in Lyra's like twenty. Yeah, that's why it's kind of like it's a little strange for me. I'm just like mm, I don't know what else they can do because it was really beautiful, if bittersweet ending. Um, you know, separated by worlds and kind of stuff. <laughs> Spoilers. Sorry, Willoughby. I don't know if you're ever planning to read this series. It's it really, is really good. I recommend it. It's nothing against you, but I probably won't read it. <laughs> we all okay. know Willoughby's feeling on um, reading. <laughs> I like reading. I just like them with pictures. And oh my God, are you Gaston? What I really like How is comic How can you read books. this? There it's are no okay. pictures. Everyone reads what they like to read, and... This was my favorite series. Philip Pullman, for a while, was my favorite author. And um, I'm curious to see where he'll take this, you know, uh, as a companion series, I guess. Um, I will probably pick it up and read it right away, because I just love the original trilogy so much. But I am also, I, I approach it with a grain of salt. Also, we should mention that they're doing a BBC TV show. They are. Yes. On his dark materials. Which will probably be much better than the terrible movie that... Yep. was released a couple of years ago. With Nicole Kidman yep. and Daniel Craig. It's so sad because the casting was so good, and the girl who played Lyra was actually great, but they completely neutered the whole religious message, or like anti-religious message, I guess you could say, because of pressure from the church, which is unfortunate because it's just an interesting and unique story for a children-slash-YA novel, if you want to call it that. I hate that that label when they pe- when people slap it on it. Speaking of unfortunate, it, interesting parallels between a series of unfortunate events and his dark materials mm-hmm. in terms of adaptations. <gasps> Both had real shitty movies in the mid-2000s, and now they're getting revivals on, as TV shows. Oh, That's a good point. Fascinating. Hey. I'm... So I think... I, guys, I really like this... I, I mean, I know we hate Game of Thrones, but I like that Game of Thrones has kind of initiated this new trend of TV shows as books, or like ad- ad- adapting books, mm-hmm. um, instead of movies adapting books, because especially when t- these books are like over a course of a long time. Um, it's a medium so like, better suited to it. Yeah, so I, I like the idea of adapting a TV show, ad- adapting a book a series of books into the TV shows. So I'm just wondering, when are we going to get the Harry Potter reboot as a TV show in, like, 2030? Probably when um, Daniel Radcliffe is old enough to play James Potter in a cameo. Ooh. Do, like, the CW thing where they take an older actor from, like, the previous series and put him in? Yeah. Yeah. Like how Supergirl's mom on Supergirl was... She played Supergirl. And same with yeah. the Flash. I mean, not his dad. Well, his dad. Yeah, his dad. Mm-hmm. And Riverdale did that with, well, not with a previous Archie show, but Luke Perry was on a, was on nine hundred two and zero. A teen um, soap. A teen soap, and now he's playing the dad of a kid in a teen soap. So it all comes full circle. Yes. Time is a flat circle. Wibbly wobbly yeah. timey wimey. <laughs> so. If you guys, that was kind of an ep- a roller coaster of an episode, but you know that's what sitcoms do to you. Also, late night podcasting. <laughs> um, so if you guys have any thoughts on sitcoms, what are your favorites? The kind of comedy you like? You guys should definitely come chat with us about that. Same if you guys have any thoughts on the Edge of Seventeen, the new equal trilogy to his Dark Materials. Or if you guys have listened to Beautiful Anonymous or any other podcast you want to recommend to us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? Oh, you can find us on Facebook, where you can search for us there. We're also on Twitter, at Falcon Podcast. 
We have a blog, millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can hear us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and Google Play, or you can rate, review, and subscribe to us there. And where can they find you guys? You can find me at htrenbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye.